So what caught my attention was this teenager was talking about Christianity. My ears perked right up. But there was a tone. There was a tone in his voice, and it wasn't a good tone. And I was like, what, what is going on there? And uh, he used a phrase that it was brand new to him. And maybe you know of this, maybe you don't. He was with a negative tone using the phrase, Bible Belt Christians. Now, whatever you understand about that or think uh, about that, I'll tell you what he thought about this phrase. Uh, this was not a good thing. Bible Belt Christians. He had come to the understanding that there's this huge chunk of this country where you can find all kinds of people who will say, I am a Christian. And they love to wear their Sunday best, suit and tie, best dress. They've got a big Bible in their hands. They've got a big chip on their shoulder. And they've got small, shriveled hearts. And you can find 20 churches on every corner, but you'll have a really hard time finding a merciful, gracious, kind, and loving person anywhere. And he didn't like this. This seems to be everywhere. They know their Bible. They look good on the outside. But here's the truth about them. Nobody even likes them at all. Nobody likes these kinds of people because they're two-faced. Welcome to week two of this series. There's something smug, something look down your nose, something superior in their spirituality. They nod and they wink at each other because they know that they're in some kind of club and they know that other people are not. Those heathens, those gays and lesbians, and they smile at each other. We're in the club and they're not. They know the church jokes, they know church lingo, they know church culture, they know which denomination is the best, which version of the Bible is the one that you're supposed to read. They know all about these sort of inside club jokes, but they know nothing of the power of God in their lives, and they fail to love people. That teenager was my eldest son. And he was asking a great question. Beyond all that I've just described, he looked me in the eyes, and this is what he was asking. Dad, I've just come to understand this. Are you telling me, Dad, is that what we are? And I looked him in the eye and I said, Son, I don't want to ever be that man. I am never going to be that guy. I refuse to be that guy. And son, I'm going to bend over backwards to ensure that our church never becomes that kind of church. I don't want it. The funny thing about all of that is nobody wakes up in the morning and says to themselves, oh, do you know what I want to become? Nobody. I mean, who does that? No one wakes up in the morning and says, my goal in life is to be a smug, spiritual superior, look down my nose, big Bible, look the part, but the truth is I actually don't even love people and nobody likes me. Nobody. And yet, such people are everywhere. 
In fact, I bet you it wouldn't be any stretch for you right now to think of somebody and you would say, they fit that description. Do not look to your right or your left right now. <laughs> it's not hard. It's not even hard. And so we bump into a group of people in the New Testament. And I'm not joking you. They fit what I've just described in the last two minutes. They fit that description to a T. And they had a title. They had a name. They were a group of people. They were simply called Pharisees. That's who they were. They were the religious leaders of their day, way back then. They were the people that everyone else looked at, and people had them on a pedestal. Like, we better, we ought to listen to what they have to say, because surely these people are religious, and they know what they're doing, and they've got their act together, so we should respect them, and we should do as we're told, and we should sort of, you know, cross the other side of the street if we see them, because, wow, you know, they're the Pharisees. They're the religious leaders. And what's incredible to me is if you look at the four Gospels and we see just so many examples of people encountering Jesus Christ. And you think of all, that, all the individuals that he addressed, whether it was like massive crowds or in people's homes or a party or small groups of people or his disciples or the 12 or the 3 or the 72 or the one-on-one. -on -one. There's just like so many occasions where Jesus is spending time talking to people, giving them hope preaching truth, healing them, helping them, delivering them. And you see, on every occasion, he's just pouring out such compassion on these individuals, except for in this one occasion, again and again, with this one group of people where it would seem that Jesus seems to save his harshest words and his most pointed criticism for Pharisees. Everyone else, it's patience and grace and let me help you, and let me heal you, and let me speak truth to you, but not this group. It seems like every time his words are pointed, they are sharp. Why would you do that, Jesus? Why just this one group of people? And of course, it begs the question. Pastor Wally set this up so well for us last week. You have to ask the question. You must. Could this be me? Is it possible that I'm a Pharisee. You have to ask it of yourself. Is there perhaps some degree of Pharisee in me? And I don't know it. Maybe I don't know, but maybe everyone else does, but it's the one thing I don't know, right? It's like, man, you've got something in your teeth there. Everyone else knows it, but you, you don't have any clue. You have no idea. I've got something in my teeth, and this isn't good. God, maybe I need to step into some self-awareness because I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that woman, and I don't want us to be that church. So I want us to look at a scripture in, in the book of Matthew, and I don't know if you've ever bumped into a conversation where you kind of walked into the room, and then you realize that the two people talking are not getting along very well, and they're having a bit of, a, bit of a, an argument, and you're like, awkward, I don't know what to do. So welcome to Matthew chapter 23, because there's a group of people, Jesus is talking to them, and in this gang of people, there's a good number, there's a bunch of Pharisees, and he's going to point out some stuff in front of everybody about the Pharisees that everyone honors and elevates and looks up to, and he's just going to go ahead and say it. So check out an awkward conversation here, and very pointed. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. 
So do and observe what they tell you to. But not the words they do. Now you've got to realize they're right there. He's saying this in front of them. But not the, wor- but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. So that's the equivalent of me standing up here and saying, church, you need to do this, this, this. And then I walk away. I'm like, well, I'm not doing it. And that's what he says about these people. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear. And they lay them on people's shoulders, to be, uh, on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad and their, and their fringes long. So what he's actually describing there is like the uniform of a rabbi, right? They would wear this particular robe that they would wear a box with particular scriptures on their forehead and on their wrist. They would have these tassels and these kind of ropes around them. And if you took one look at them, you would say, oh, that dude looks like a Pharisee. It's like the uniform of a Pharisee. And what they were doing is those trinkets and sort of fringe elements of the clothes that they wore that identified them as Pharisees, what they were doing is they were taking those things and they were literally enlarging them physically on their body. So they were making them look bigger so that when anybody saw them, they would know that's a Pharisee. And he's pointing this out. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. A lot of pride there. A lot of upfront stuff. A lot of image management. You're not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher. You're all brothers. Call no man your father on earth for you have one father who's in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. Look at this statement at the end. This is where there's huge contrast in this passage of Scripture. The greatest among you shall be your servant. The Pharisees did not understand this. They did not live this out. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So let me just pray for a moment here. Father, we, we ask you to bless us and to speak to us through your word. We recognize that these words are pointed. These are sharp words. And would you give us humble hearts today to learn from you as you speak into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, for me, as I read these words, it's it's just riddled with pride. These few little verses that we're looking at here, it's just pride, 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 pride all over the place. In this scripture, there is a massive contrast of two kingdoms. Um, And Jesus is bending over backwards to point out that there are two extremely separate kingdoms here. We oftentimes blur it all together and we just think, you know, it's just a big blob of life. There's work and there's kids and there's family and there's money and there's church and there's things I do and there's ways in which I try to help and maybe I go to a group and I try to give money and it's all just one big blob of stuff. You know, we're just a bunch of nice people trying to do a bunch of nice stuff and, and Jesus is going, no, 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 wait a minute. I want to tell you about the kingdom of God and the language that we so, see so often in the New Testament. It couldn't be more distinct. It talks about like a kingdom of light and a kingdom of darkness, like two very, very different things. Radically different. Jesus is saying they're nothing like each other at all. Massive contrast. And that there is no middle ground. You will find yourself in one of two kingdoms. And in this passage of scripture, here's the distinction. You will find yourself living a life walking in humility. Or you will live your life walking in pride. 
And there's not really much in between at all. You will live your life walking in humility or you will live your life walking in pride. These people are listening to Jesus. So he turns to the very people that are in the room that everyone thinks they're the religious leaders. They're the spiritual authority. They know their stuff. They've got their act together. They're devout. They love God. So we really should look to them and listen to them and heed them. And Jesus says in front of the whole crowd, he says, do you see those people that you think are so spiritually incredible? Do you see those people? Let me tell you what's really going on in their lives. Now these guys are not accustomed to anybody calling them on the carpet in front of everybody. Now when I read the scripture, <laughs> I look at the scripture and I'm like, like Jesus, no doubt about it, you are, you are, you're thrown down here. Like this is hardcore. And I read it, I'm like, that is a great scripture. Wow. Like this is gutsy stuff for Jesus to do in, in, front, of a, in front of this crowd, in front of these Pharisees. And then I look at the scripture and I'm like, hmm. Do you know who else the scripture would be really good for? <laughs> what is that? Do you know, I, I can think of somebody else, not me. I can think of somebody else that this scripture would be really good for. And then the Lord just turns the spotlight on me. And that's the temptation with this text, is to think it's for somebody else. You think it's for somebody else. And do you want to know the reason why we're so tempted to think it's for somebody else? Because <laughs> of pride. It's pride. It's not for me. This is for somebody else. Because I don't have a problem with that. Pride is so deceptive. That is the nature of pride. It causes us to be unable to see ourselves and our need and our true condition before the Lord. It robs us of the capacity to even see what God wants to accomplish in our lives. I want you to say something after me, okay? God is speaking to me today. Would, would you mind saying that out loud? Ready? God is speaking to me today. Okay, everyone in Alma, everyone online, everyone in Mount Pleasant, super loud. Ready? God is speaking to me today. That's what this word is. I can, uh, I can do a little bit of cooking. I'm not very good. But I can I could make a dinner if called upon. I know how to make spuds, of course. Uh, I can get a few veg going. I know how to cook a bit of meat. And I can just about get it to be ready in and around the same time and stick it on a plate. My cooking is nothing fancy at all, but it will keep you alive. Uh, and every now and again, this is what I've found. I'm doing the pots and pans, and I'm making a bit of dinner, and I'm trying to time it all and get it done. And then I turn around, because I'm really focused, and I'm like, wow, is it kind of smoky in the house? <laughs> What's going on there? I'm like, Kelly, is there like a haze in here? What's going on? And then all of a sudden, this very loud, piercing sound happens in my house. And of course, that would be the smoke detectors. And I'm like, oh, no, I've done it again. Open the windows, let the front door open, open up the sliding door, let's get a breeze through the house. And it's great, right? It's good to have that. The handy thing about a smoke detector is it's going to be super loud. And in case there's a fire, and I think the, the probably more helpful thing about a fire, if there can be anything helpful about a fire in your house, would be that it's actually possible to see it, right? There's a fire. You can feel it. There's heat coming off it. You can smell it, or you can see the smoke. There's another kind of detector that a lot of people put in their house or in their business. And it's called a carbon monoxide detector. And the thing about a carbon monoxide detector that's incredible is 
It's going to let you know if something lethal has crept into your home and going to touch your life. But the thing of it is, there's no possible way that you can know that's taking place. Because carbon monoxide doesn't have a taste or a smell, and you can't see it. It is an invisible killer. And that's what pride is. It is an invisible killer in your life. Remember earlier when I talked about like nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I want to be that kind of person, and yet such people are everywhere. The problem is this stuff exists in us, and we have no idea. It is an invisible killer, and you cannot discern it because you cannot taste it, and you cannot smell it within yourself. You don't know that it's possibly going on, which makes it all the more important for you to ask the, cru- the crucial question. It's the same one my son was asking. Is, could this be me? Are you saying that this could be me? We've got to ask the question. C.S. Lewis, look at his, his language is a little rich. I'll, I'll try my best to explain it. But he comments on this very thing. He says, people think Christians regard unchastity. So that, that would be a word to describe like any kind of sexual sin, sexual immorality of any kind. People think Christians regard unchastity as the supreme vice. Right, so people think the Christians think like sexual sin is the worst sin of all. That's, that's, the, that's the major weakness that is going to cause us to trip up. And, and, uh, and C.S. Lewis says, you're quite wrong. He said, don't get me wrong, the sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and go on with a list of sins, and all of that, they are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. And if you don't know that you have it, you're in for a world of pain. Every now and again, (laughs) I find myself putting on my belt in the morning. And this has happened to me several times in my life. I'm being very vulnerable now. And I'm like, oh, look, my belt has run out of holes. (laughs) Has this ever happened to you? I'm like, my belt must be broken. What's happening, silly belt? And, uh, and then I realize, oh, look, all of my trousers. They must all have shrunk. This crazy washing machine that's broken. And then I come to this awareness where I'm like, okay, it's time to pay the piper. Maybe you need to cut back on the Irish chocolate and the bread, and I, oh, don't you just love all that good stuff? And then try to get time to get a little bit more active. And here's the ridiculous thing. I'll be totally honest with you. I can, I can be, misbehave and eat ir, like an irresponsible two-year-old for like two years of my life until all my belts are broken, okay? And then I'm like, okay, time to behave myself, and I'll start behaving myself for five minutes, and then here's what happens. I'll see somebody eating an ice cream, and I'm like, oh. Hope you like your ice cream there. You wouldn't catch me eating an ice cream. I'm quite disciplined myself, you know. (laughs) Five minutes, five minutes. What is that? I mean, it's just, I'm better, you're worse than me, pride. And it's absolutely two-faced, and I think it's in all of us. How does this sound? If only they knew the doctrine that I know. If only they'd been in church as many years as I've been in church. One time, I preached a message. This is many years ago in a different church. I preached a message, and I'm not joking you. I was 
even emotional in the message to the point of tears, and I just poured out my heart, tried my very best. I preached for about maybe half an hour or so, if, if you're lucky for me to get under half an hour. And uh, I stepped down off the platform, and a gentleman came up to me. He was probably in his late 70s, and this is what he said to me. He said, you're a lot younger than me, and I've been in church a whole lot longer than you, so I couldn't possibly expect for you to know what I know. And what I had done is I had made a mistake. I had said a date wrong from an historical book. I said the wrong date. Right? Crucify me. I said the wrong date. And he corrected me for the date. And I thought, as I walked away, well, that's really discouraging. Uh, and I thought, I wonder, the other 29 and a half minutes, did that bless him in any way, shape, or form? But he had nothing to say about that. He simply wanted to put me in my place. If only they could grasp the revelation that I have. If only, they, if only that church knew how to fast the way I know how to fast. If only they knew how to pray the way I know how to pray, the right way to pray. If only that church worshiped like our church, because our church does, and all of this stuff comes in. And here's the danger. The danger in all that, I don't know if you've noticed this, but there's high spiritual moments in all of that where you look at God speaking to us. Why does God speak to us? Because of his unbelievable goodness, right? Where he's like, I'm gonna pour out my love and my patience and my kindness to you. And then we're on the receiving end of that. And now we see his presence and his acceptance in our lives. And then the enemy comes in and he whispers and he just goes, oh, look at you. Look at what you now know and understand. Humility enters our life at places of weakness. When you're like, man, I don't have my act together. I don't know what to do next. I'm at the end of my rope. I desperately recognize that I need you, God. Pride is the opposite. It enters our life at these high points when you've been reading your Bible, when you've been going to church, when you've been helping other people, and you say, man, I'm doing a fairly good job here. Isaiah chapter 6, this is prophecy in the Old Testament, where the prophet, a fellow by the name of Isaiah himself, he has this incredible encounter, like face-to-face -face encounter with God and in his presence. For the previous six points, it's been six chapters. It's been prophecy and poetry. If you read the first six chapters, it's a tough read, I'll be honest with you. Where the prophet Isaiah is speaking to the nation of Israel. For six chapters, here's his language. He's talking to a group of people and he's saying, Woe to this group of people. Like, you have got to be careful. Here's a sense of God's warning because judgment is coming because you're being so incredibly disobedient. You're riddled with pride. And so he's like, woe to the nation of Israel, woe to this nation, woe to this group of people. It's sort of this collective language of warning. And then it comes to chapter 6 in Isaiah, and the language just turns on a dime. And it's Isaiah, he turns the whole thing around, and all of a sudden he goes from talking collectively and corporately to woe to this nation, this group of people. And he turns around, and he looks at himself, the prophet himself, and he says, woe is me. Totally changes on a dime. He walks into the presence of God and there's this incredible humble response in him where he recognizes his own desperation, his own condition before God. He recognizes his own flaws and weaknesses and he recognizes his own sinfulness and the junk that has come out of his mouth. He's a prophet. 
and he's concerned about his lips. He speaks the words of God and he says, woe, I'm an unclean man. Incredible humility. The timing of that passage of scripture is incredible. The exact manner in which it unfolds is incredible. And don't get this confused because um, there's two names in here. There's the prophet Isaiah, but it also talks about a king by the name of Uzziah. So Uzziah and Isaiah, they're quite similar. Don't get them mixed up. And it says this, it says that when Isaiah is prophesying, he did this in the year that King Uzziah actually died. Now, if you go to Chronicles, it gives you a tiny bit of backstory on this guy. He became Israel's king at the age of 16. And he did everything right. It actually says about him that um, he did what was right in the eyes of God. And as a result of that, we see God saying, well, I'm going to bless this man's reign over the nation of Israel. I'm now going to bless the people of God. And we see sort of prosperity return to the nation and their army is enlarging and things are going very, very well and they're being blessed and their enemies are, are kind of sent away and everything's great. And it would seem as though God is actually restoring to the nation of Israel and what had been taken away as a result of previous kings who had done wicked things in the eyes of God. And so you've got this young, young man, and in all of that blessing and prosperity, it's quite like Isaiah, we looked at him a few weeks ago, after a period of time, it just begins to go to his head, and you're reading this, and you're going, oh, don't, don't wreck it, don't ruin it, you're starting off so well to this young, young king, and some time passes by until eventually one day, Riddled with pride, King Uzziah walks into the temple of God to encounter God and he changes the rules and he forgets and puts to one side the requirements that God had laid upon him and he goes to the priest and he says, I'm going to do this sacrifice and the Levites come up to him and they're like, King, like that's not appropriate. Like God has laid this out quite clearly. You're not, not actually supposed to do this. The priesthood is supposed to do that and he just ignores them because he's the king and he comes before God and God strikes him with leprosy. Very harsh scripture. And so six chapters in Isaiah, judgment and warning, woe to the nation of Israel, woe to the nation of Israel, woe to this group of people. We get to chapter six and it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, we see that the prophet Isaiah has this encounter with God that is birthed in humility. Six chapters of Isaiah prophesying pride, that is dragging down and destroying a nation. Isaiah sees this. He has a clear grasp that God's not going to take some chill pill. He won't do it with pride. He won't. I see God's patience in so many other arenas except pride. He will not coddle up to pride and coexist with it. He just doesn't tolerate it. He's going to call it out again and again in our lives. Clearly, Isaiah gets this truth that God opposes, opposes the proud and that he embraces the humble. Now, I got enough opposition going on in my life. I don't want God opposed to me. I don't think I could handle that. And it says, in the year that, the, in the year that King Uzziah died, in the year that pride died, Isaiah gets this revelation of God that is birthed in humility. The timing is incredible. Isaiah sees God's unwillingness to coexist with pride. And so he humbles himself and he has this incredible encounter with God and God actually touches his lips. Matthew 11 is, for those of you who are familiar with the Bible, a very, very favorite scripture where it says, come to me, those of you who are weary and burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Lovely words. Easy to see why we like that scripture. But it says, I want you to learn from me because I am gentle 
This is God, and I am humble of heart. That's God himself. How do we grow? How do we move beyond this stuff? And our temptation always is to go to rules. Okay, I'll do this and this and this and this, and if I can do those things, then I'll transform. And I just got to tell you, that never, ever, ever, ever works. It doesn't work. Here's how you are transformed, particularly in the context of pride. Jesus, I refuse to agree with pride in my life. I refuse to walk with it. I see it. Thank you for exposing that in me. I am no longer interested in just pursuing myself. So I'll change everything that I think is important. And with great humility, I'm going to seek you. That's your starting blocks. God opposes the proud. He resists the proud. Imagine that. Arm length from God because of pride in your life. But he embraces the humble. Some of you are angry with God. Some of you are angry with God because God didn't do what you wanted him to do. Some of you are angry with God because you prayed a prayer and he didn't answer it when you wanted it. He didn't answer it the way that you wanted And I don't know what that looks like for you, of course, or the extent of that for you. But right now I'm telling you, you have placed yourself arm's length from God. And you're riddled with pride, but you're blind to it. Paul in the New Testament, he's, like, he's a bit of a spiritual giant. He lives a remarkable life. But then he talks about himself in the context of the other apostles. And do you know what he calls himself? He says, I'm the least of all the apostles. That's debatable stuff. What he did was pretty phenomenal. And when he says that, I think he really, really means it. And then he turns around and he simply says this. Church, I want you to hear this. He says this. I am what I am because of the grace of God. Amen? That's what he says. Listen, the guy wrote like a third of the New Testament. He's an apostle. He is a heavyweight, incredible man of God. And he turns around and he says, no, I'm the least in that company. But here's what you need to know about me more than anything else. Anything that I am, anything that I am is merely because of his grace and nothing to do with me. I like that. I want to be that kind of guy. Humility will enable you to say today, Look, I don't deserve to be, and look for Paul, he's got a mega title, mega title, apostle, author of the canon of scripture, for goodness sake. And for you and I to turn around and say, look, whatever title I may have, whether I'm a husband or a wife, or whether I'm a mom or a dad, or whether I have this job or that title or this, this clout, whatever it is, here's what I gotta say. Look, no matter what, I am what I am because of his grace. That's the truth about me. Later on in Paul's life, he's getting actually close to the end of his life, and I think he knows it. And he makes mention again of how he perceives himself. His language is utterly unique. He doesn't say, I'm the least of the apostles. Here's what he says. He basically says, out of everybody that I know, everybody in church, he says, all of them, I'm the least of everybody. And I don't think it's a complex. I don't think it's unhealthy. A man who had an incredible planting, church planting ministry, incredible knowledge of scripture, Incredible teacher. He says, I'm the least of everybody. I am what I am because of the grace of God. I, I don't think it's false humility. I don't think that's unhealthy like I'm just worthless. First Timothy, he just goes the whole hog and he comes right out and he just says it. He says, in fact, out of everybody, is what he says, I think I'm the worst sinner of, of all of you. Some of your translations say this, I'm the chief of sinners. That's the title 
that he gives himself chief, right? That senior chief of what? Of sin. Here's what I know. He says, I'm coming to the end of my life. And here's what I know. God is, God's poured his grace out on me. God's patience. God's goodness. He rescued an awful sinner like me. And he's rescued me. And then in this passage of scripture, 1 Timothy, he describes himself as this rescued sinner, this chief of all sinners. And then he just turns around and he just bursts into praise. It just pours out of his mouth. And he says, and now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory and praise forever and ever. It's just pouring out of him. I'm not looking at you. not comparing myself to you. You're not better than me. I'm not better than you. I refuse to hold on to anger and unforgiveness. I'm always going to extend grace to others because here's what I know. It was extended to me. I don't need to do what you're doing. I know what God's called me to do. I stand here today. I stand in his holy presence in front of a group of my brothers and my sisters. And here's what I would say about myself. I am what I am because of the grace of God. That's me. I don't deserve his love. I don't deserve his patience. I haven't done anything to twist God's arm or to say, well, all right, you've done enough good stuff now, Alan. I'll come on into the club. And none, of that, none of that goes for me. I am what I am because of the grace of God. And I know this, that the grace of God is only made available to those of us who will humble our hearts before him. I gotta have that. I gotta have that in my life. This invisible killer in our churches and in our lives where we turn around and we say, my ministry and my job and my title and my clout and my place and, and look at the, the trinkets on my robes and my, you know, the, the fringes of, of my uniform and, and my position. Do you know how long I've been to church? Do you know what I know? I think I know more than you. All of that stuff, it's just pride killing the people of God. Rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and he says, look, I've done it all. That's what he says to Jesus, the son of God. I've done it all. I've obeyed every command. I've got it all together. I know exactly what I'm doing. Can you smell the pride? And he doesn't see it. And he walks away disappointed. And I think he's clueless, blind. He's got something in his teeth. And Jesus just pointed it out. And he still can't see it. If you are always around people who are criticizing if you are always around people who are pointing their fingers, you are in the company of pride. Get out of that company. John 3, 17. He didn't come into the world to condemn the world, and yet it would seem that when it comes to pride, he points it out. I love you so much, I will show you two-facedness within yourself. Hypocrisy, Pharisee, I will show it to you. I will not turn a blind eye to it. Church, what do we do with this? Sharp words from Jesus. By the way, I'm going to keep on preaching next week exactly from where we're at. And the passage that Jesus just spoke about in Matthew chapter 23, it's the mild version of what he's going to do next week. I'm not joking. It's going to blow your lid off. It's, it's wow. Jesus, are you really saying those words? What do we do with this church? What do you do with potential pride in you? That's the only question that you have to ask. Don't worry about anybody else. God is speaking to me today. What do you do with potential pride in you? And here's what I would say. I am what I am because of the grace of God. And I want to say to you today, God, I'm so grateful for your grace. Amen? Anyone here grateful for the grace of God? Grateful for the grace of God. 
I see God that you love me and I don't deserve it. I see God, you pour out your care for me. I didn't do anything to get myself there. I see your goodness over my family and we don't deserve that. Lord, anything I have is because of what your provision over my life. God, what would you want to do with my life today? Everything that I have, everything Jesus, everything for you, the grace of God. Where would I be but for the grace of God? Let's stand and let's worship Jesus together.